Welcome to the Heroes of Reality Podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Welcome, adventurers. Dylan here. And on today's podcast, I have Dr. Evie Powell. She is a game researcher and developer specializing in immersive interactions and prototype design. She is the lead virtual reality engineer at uh, Proprio Vision. I probably butchered that, so I apologize. At a surgical imaging company uh, fusing humans and computer vision into a powerful new system for surgical performance and training. She founded Virgin Brilliance LLC, an independent experimental game studio in Seattle, and previously worked at Microsoft on natural user interfaces and the Kinect technology at Xbox. With a unique career bridging gaming and healthcare, Dr. Powell integrates game design and UX design to create meaningful experiences that help people learn, play, and work differently. At Proprio, she focused on is on anticipating how surgeons think and designing a suite of tools to empower them to think and perform optimally. So without any further delay, I'd like to welcome Dr. Evie Powell. Hi. Hello. Hey, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yes, yes, thanks for having me. Awesome. <laughs> so we are just talking um, before this, I haven't talked to you in a little while, it's been a couple of years, um, right. but we were both at the USC creating reality hackathon i was the the lead judge over there you were mentoring um we had some really good conversations on um human interaction human-centered design game thinking all that type of stuff um and so i thought it'd be great um to have you come on the podcast and and get all geeky with you on all of those types of subjects um so th thank you yeah appreciate um so i would i'd love to first kind of start off with like what got you into the whole world of like game researcher and and developing these immersive interaction systems what sparked the general interest to have you go on this kind of quest okay um well uh let's see uh, i think back from 2009 to 2012 i was a phd student um at unc charlotte um i went to a i, I went to the um, GDC, actually this was a couple of years before the PhD. Um, I went to GDC for the first time um, and uh, uh, through the IGD, IGDA um, uh, GDC scholarship. I think I was one of the first recipients of that, um, which is pretty cool. If you're not in IGDA, you should definitely join. It's very worthwhile. Um, and uh, one of the most standout things that was there was um, it was a game, um, and oh, I normally remember his name, and I'm sorry I didn't remember, but the guy that worked on the game, he basically made a game for um, uh, social networking at this conference. Um, and so it was very, very simple. There was like a database, local database, where they were storing information about how many points people had. Um, but it started out with like really basic missions, things like, um, you know, find a business card with rounded edges or find someone that works on virtual reality or find someone that's from this particular company and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I was already uh, involved in like games research. Um, I was just really interested in uh, game theory, play theory. Um, I was obsessed with video game music. So I was just determined to get into the industry somehow. Um, and, um, and so what I found really interesting about this game 
um, was that uh, being a naturally sort of introverted person that didn't really want to, you know, just cold approach people and things like that, it really shifted the way I was thinking about like that whole thing. You know, I was there um, and my uh, advisor was telling me that like, oh, you need to bring at least 300 business cards because you're going to hand them all out. You're going to talk to that many people. And that was just terrifying. <laughs> but playing that game made me actually think about it as something that was fun. And that was really intriguing to me. Um, so when I came back from that conference, obviously I was really excited about being there for the first time and stuff like that. But afterwards, I really thought about like, you know, what did the idea of turning that into a game do for me? Um, mm -hmm. Because it basically shifted something that caused a lot of anxiety into something that was really exciting and fun yeah. um, uh, and engaging. So um, I started um, focusing my research on that kind of thing. Um, whereas prior, I had been uh, focused on, you know, using games for education, for learning, like computer science concepts and things of that nature. But yeah. um, that really helped me shift my, my focus. And so by the time I graduated with the PhD, it was really more about um, socially pervasive game experiences. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was what I ended up doing my research on. Um, I made a game um, that was uh, very much influenced off of the game that I played in GDC, huh. um, but really started to um, match some of that with like, uh, you know, graph theory, um, you know, data mining techniques and things of that nature. So that like you could, you know, by playing this game and logging in, you tell the game about yourself, you know, what types of people you're interested in talking to. And it starts to give you really easy missions to start out with, with like, you know, find somebody that's interested in computer science. But as the game learns more about the people you're connected to and um, potentially making connections that are valuable to you, it starts to give you more um, targeted and complicated missions. Yeah. Um, when, you, when you say socially pervasive, can you describe a little bit more about that? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, the idea of a pervasive game, um, and so I'm I'm pretty sure I'm using sort of outdated terminology at this point, like, you know, ubiquitous computing, all of that stuff, like, we have, like, different ways of talking about this stuff now, but um, when you think about um, the idea of per pervasive systems, they're usually sort of always on, always aware, things of that nature. When you take that idea and turn it into, uh, you know, uh, play theory and game theory, um, it's the idea that this circle of play that usually a game is tightly contained in um, is uh, is broken in some way. And usually that is spatially, temporally, or socially. Um, and so when you talk about a socially pervasive game, that's usually a game that blurs the lines between players and non-players. Mm. Um, so even non-players have some kind of influence in the person that's playing the game. Mm. Um so, uh, yeah, it was really interesting because it was really a combination of like pervasive systems and ubiquitous mm -hmm. computing and this idea of uh, pervasive game experience and blending, mm -hmm. um, you know, reality from this game that you're playing. So it's interesting. So you're almost yeah, what you're doing is you're, you're bringing players that aren't really aware of them and you're also almost automatically signing them up to be real world NPCs. Yes. Where yeah, whether you want to or not. Yeah, yeah. Whether they know it or they're not, you are helping me on my mission. Yeah, exactly. I, I had I had something very similar happen. Uh, I had something very similar. I went to um, Florida, Orlando, Florida, and mm -hmm. uh, I, I 
I messed up and I parked at this one. I don't know if you've ever been to Florida, um, but there's like the, the, the where you go to Disneyland there is huge. It's massive. And I didn't realize this. I parked at the wrong spot um, and I was there and we're, we're hanging out. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we we, uh, we 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 misdosed an edible and it was just stronger than we thought it was going to be. And then we were stuck at this one location. We had to go miles and miles to the other spot. And then we downloaded the Disney map, the Disney app. And on there, I could see it. Here's you are here, and we had to make it miles this way. And so we had to figure out this whole busing system to get from where we're at to where we wanted to go. And as we're there, like looking at the thing, uh, a guard walked up. He's like, "You guys doing okay?" And I'm like, "Yeah, we're trying to get to we're trying to get to Disney World." And like, oh, you need to hop on this bus and you're going to go to this hotel and you're going to cross to this other hotel and you're going to go in there. And I was like, I'm like, I was like, thank you, real world NPC. You know, I was like, <laughs> gave me the mission. Then I got, in, I got on the bus and I got halfway closer to the date and I looked at the map. I was like, I'm closer, I'm closer. And we started like using the map to get to where we needed to go to. Um, but that kind of became our own real world gamification pieces where people politely, if you ask them, would help you get to where you wanted to go. And it became very, it came from being this overwhelming adventure to actually being something that we could then focus on this task at hand. And because we had the task, the other, you know, cognitive loops that are going on in the background for whatever reasons um, were, uh, it, it really lowered the, the, the anxiety of that, that socialness, right? That social okay. Yeah, so it was just it felt very similar and akin to what that was. What do you think that, like, because you're, you're talking about designing this around the same type of situation as social anxiety, people being around, turn it into a game. What about that issue? Like, why does that make it less stressful? What about that situation? Like, is it like a is it a refocusing or is it a different storyline we're telling ourselves or what's 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 the subtext there? I think you kind of nailed it with this idea of it's a different story we're telling ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, it's um, or not for me, but for my research, basically, um, I talked a lot about the idea of shifting between the telic, this is a serious mindset, and mm -hmm. the paratelic. Um, paratelic is is just a fancy word of just saying like playful mindset. Um, and so when we think about sort of um, you know high activity um, or um, high uh, mental engagement. Um, when we are in a serious mindset and we are thinking very, very, uh, uh, very focused on like a task, uh, there's a like high energy associated with it. Mm -hmm. A lot of the times that is equated with something like um, anxiety or stress or something like that. It's like, OK, in reality, my entire goal is to survive. Everything is around this idea of just, you know, being um, being accepted, you know, being uh, alive, you know, having resources, things of that right. nature. Um, and so um, something that's just sort of uh, high energy like that is just interpreted um, that way. Whereas high energy in a playful mindset is usually interpreted as excitement. So mm. the same physiological response is uh, interpreted differently between serious and anxious, anxious and anxiety, mm. and non-serious and exciting and interesting. Um, inversely, uh, low energy uh, is usually calm, relaxed, something like that in serious uh, mindset. But that same physiological um, response is usually equated with boredom, um, mm. in a playful mindset. Mm. Um, and so, um, and I think there's a lot of reasons as for why that is, yeah. uh, because like, I think that, you know, um, we've sort of evolved 
to learn things and to be educated um, in a more constrained environment. And that's essentially what play is. It's basically, um, you know, when you're playing a game, you're usually taking, um, uh, you know, some uh, large continuous idea and, and then turning it into this sort of bounded experience where there are rules um, and there are, are uh, very, very clear, discrete objectives. Um, and so when we do that, then um, we, you know, we are creating a boundary in which we can learn a very small subsystem that over time we tend to take that learning and apply it towards bigger and more serious things outside of that context. That's super interesting. So I mean, like reflecting and parroting back just a little bit of what I'm hearing there, um, you have kind of like these these meta stories and, and depending on your mindset that you're in, your physiological reactions, you'll then interpret it different. If you're in the playful mindset, the, the, the high energy that you feel turns into excitement versus if you're in the serious survival, if I mess up, I'm gonna get kicked out of the tribe, run out of food and die in the forest then that's a whole different that's a whole different mindset that you've got going on right? right so depending on your mindset you'll take the physiology combine that with the mindset outputs your response to that to the to the physiological responses right so you have you have those components going on and what you're saying is that if there's too much ambiguity uh, ambiguity if it's too vague if there's too much to process that that vagueness creates uncertainty the uncertainty creates fear and doubt and worry and all that fun stuff but if you constrain it into a play box and you say, no, no, don't worry about any of these other things. Just focusing, just focusing on on making that one NPC your friend so that he gives you the magical key card and you can pass on to the next level. Then all of that doubt, uncertainty, and fear goes away. And then you're able to then leverage, you can then just focus and take action. And then by just by just by being able to feel like you're making progress through the game, you can then you then all those other like like those weird uh subsystems in your brain kind of quiet down the, the ruminating mind. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you nailed it. That's great. Oh, that's super fun, <laughs> super fun. Um, so, so this is, so this is. I mean, one of the things I'm also very passionate about is these these types of topics is using um, VR primarily or gaming um, to help people be better. Um, but primarily as a byproduct, but not the focus, right? Because if you make it the focus, it becomes work and that sucks and no one likes it. Hey, go go do this work versus have this really fun game and as the byproduct, this really hard thing is now super easy to do. Right. And so, yeah, that is that's one of the best things uh, to be able to do. So, um, right. um, so please it, continue. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it basically just gives you an opportunity, like when you can confine and restrain the problem that way, yeah. uh, it allows you to better figure out and interpret it in a way of uh, strategy um, and right. outcomes and things of that nature. If yeah. you, you have too many inputs, it's really hard to make sense of it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a, a great way. And then even though I talk about a lot about blending uh, and uh, removing those boundaries, it's not about like completely removing them. Um, it's about blurring them a bit so that the gameplay, there's room for, um, uh, you know, outcomes that are happening in the game to actually affect your real, your real life. Mm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, because like, I don't know. Um, part of the framework that I ended up generating was sort of showing how we are. Um, we always sort of do that, you know, no matter how we tightly constrained a game is, usually there are parts of it that seep out mm -hmm. and people that play, you know, even if they've never played the same game together, if you've played the game enough time and you've had a shared experience with other people that have likewise played the game, you start to in those boundaries of like, 
play and experimentation and growth and learning and stuff like that, you start to get things like culture and art and things of that nature. And that is sort of that blurred, blurred area. Um, so usually when I talk about pervasive game design, it's a very interesting space where the designer is not just designing this really tightly constrained um, experience. They're trying to actually act as a maestro for like, you know, these other things that they didn't put there, but they're there nonetheless. And you have to deal with that as the player of this blended game. Well, it's interesting. You're almost you're almost using you're blending game like game mechanics and real world mechanics to cause emerge emergent gameplay, right? Yeah. And so you're looking at those those elements and blending them together. When you're talking about a framework, can you say a little bit more about that? Are you talking about like a design framework or like how you thinking about creating things? Could, could you say a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, part of my dissertation was creating what um, was a framework for building games like this. Uh, because my first couple of passes of these uh, types of games were very much, um, I mean, they they achieved what their goal to some extent, but there were um, sort of emergent outcomes that I didn't quite anticipate. Like, I think the first time, the very first time I made this game, um, a lot of people really, really liked it. So I made this game. Um, uh, we deployed it at an academic conference. Um, you know, several people... Um, I think it was something like 50 to 70 people were classified in my mind as active players. Mm -hmm. um, and so these were people that were really diehard. They were playing from the time the um, conference started to the time it ended. They were having a great time. They were all sort of like hovering in little circles and making little pods of people. It was very mm -hmm. interesting to watch. The unintended and unexpected outcome, however, was that the other people that had decided not to play um, were very frustrated with this particular group of people because they would be like, hey, come, uh, I want to talk to you. Hey, I, I, um, you know, do you go to the school? And they'd be, they'd act like they were very, very interested in talking to this other person about like, you know, their interests and what brought them to the yeah. conference or something like that. But at the end of the day, they wanted the points. So, <laughs> And so these people were so interested and so compelled to just do anything to get points yeah. that everyone that was outside of the game felt like these people are just using me for points. They're not interested in learning <laughs> anything or dealing with the conference. So don't talk to them. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> using me for points. That's so funny. Yeah. yeah. So the first couple of iterations I had yeah. to work through that was yeah. that that wasn't the intent was to be so deeply ingrained in this mm -hmm. sort of ludic play where it's all about strategy and outcome and points and things of that nature i wanted them to be able to seamlessly blend in with the with the rest of the conference make better use of the conference by through the act of playing the game so i had to do a lot to sort of develop this framework in which you know you can detect when someone's too deep inside the the circle into the ludic circle you know how do you bring people into the circle and how do you take them out of it when they get in too deep so when you oh. say ludic circle, you're talking about the, the like the fun circle. Ludic is like, isn't that fun? I forget it's like a Latin term. I, I remember reading it, but it's it's just it's 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 forgot about it. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's usually um, so basically, I had this thing called Powell's pervasive play lens. Um, <laughs> PPP. Yes. <laughs> um, and so uh, deep inside of it is the ludic play, and ludic is what we are commonly associated with gameplay. 
Um, so rules, outcome, strategy, strategic interdependence. Um, there's a start to the game, there's an end to the game, um, and uh, you know everything that you're doing uh, conforms to these rules so that you can get the outcome that you want. Mm. Um, and so then outside of that um, is um, like pedic or like sort of child's play, experimental play. Um, so uh, there's this sort of looser boundary of play. And so if you were to think of the game of like basketball or a sport mm. or something like that, the sport might be basketball and that's ludic play. And then the pedic play is probably just, you know, spinning the ball on your finger to see how long you can go with it or, you know, playing a game of horse or doing something experimental with components of the original game. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, I get get what you're saying. Yeah. And so then outside of that is, um, uh, you know, I, I tended to use lots of, um, uh, Latin terms, because a lot of the original works uh, dealing with play theory um, sort of went that direction. Um, and I was sort of building off of that. And so the next part is agalma. Um, and so agalma is basically this idea of beauty. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's the idea of like, you've had enough shared experiences, maybe in deeply in this ludic circle and this is the these are the artifacts that fell out of it so this might be um fan art um these might be like you know um let's plays you know the, these might be just like mm. the shared culture across yeah. all of this play that has been happening in yeah. this this space yeah um so yeah so if somebody were to have like a baseball bat or a basketball or a jersey or something yeah mounted on their um on their uh, wall you know somebody else that comes in says oh wow yeah you play basketball uh you know we have a lot in common because of yeah. that um That's and super- so yeah oh no oh, please oh, continue okay. i i'm, I'm yeah. forming a theory in my own mind i want to bounce against you um okay. but, but first i want you to finish the thought before i before i jump in um sure. but I'm, I'm i'm forming it may or may not make sense but i want you to com- complete the thought before i jump on top of it Okay, cool. Yeah, well, so, yeah, I mean, Agalma is really interesting because um, it creates a sense of uh, it's where um, I consider a lot of acceptability of a game and adoptability to be uh, um, formed. Because mm-hmm. if you can understand from the outside what someone is doing, you're more likely to accept it. Um, and so um, that was basically the challenge that I was having with this game was mm-hmm. that so so many people that were sort of outside mm-hmm. and serious, which I called sort of the world of earnest, mm-hmm. um, they, you know, so they're out there, they're doing survival stuff, they're doing yeah. very not gamey stuff. But yeah. when they sort of peer into that circle, if they don't have that sort of sense of beauty, culture, things of that nature, and it's more of a black, opaque box, they're mm-hmm. more, more likely to just say that doesn't fit in this world. So it shouldn't exist here Um, Mm -hmm. because like one of the reasons that we create these rules and these tight boundaries is so that crazy stuff doesn't happen. Uh, You know, if you were to be boxing and you have a very clear ring in which boxing is allowed and there's two people that are engaged in it. And if you start 
boxing with people that are not in that ring or not in that round or whatever, you're not boxing. You're just beating people up and that's not <laughs> acceptable. So <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, it uh, basically what can you do to, yeah. you know, but as a spectator, you know, you kind of have that sort of bridge of I'm yeah. not involved in the game, but I'm not, you know, completely removed from it. So there's, you know, all of these boundaries and, you know, of, of games that we don't really think about, they mm -hmm. just sort of materialize. And yeah. so pervasive gameplay is usually the idea of trying to orchestrate that space too. Love that. Okay. So you ready for my theory? And okay. we'll, we'll, we'll see how this goes. What that reminds me of is that reminds me of the different play type patterns, right? So if you, if you look at them, you, you have, um, you have like, uh, an adventurous, like an explorer. You have someone else that is uh, all about progress. You have someone else that's all about creativity. And if you look at that from the center out, right, depending on how focused you are on the game type, depends on your, your personality type. So some people go through the game just to finish it, right? And those people, they like to have those hard edges. They want to go in that they're completionists. Right? I need progress. I need to finish things. I need to go through. I need to check the box. I need to, I need to complete said step, right? So that's level one. That's in the dead center. On the outside of that is like, you know what? I'm not as interested in that. I mostly want to explore the boundaries of what's possible. And those are the explorer types. Those are the guys that you say, oh, there's the race. Other people, they're picking up blades of grass. They're trying to mold it into shapes. They're seeing how the wind affects it. They're more exploring the edges. They're not trying to complete. They're trying to understand. Yeah. And those people are trying to understand. They're on the, the second level where they're understanding their environmentals. The third level of the type is you're talking about creativity and expression. Creativity and expression is I admire this. I enjoy this. I have some sort of emotional connection to said environmentals. And because of that, I want to celebrate that through taking my interpretation lens and say, oh, how do I feel about how the ending of Death Note? I'm going to rewrite it and do it myself. How do I feel about, you know, you know, insert game mechanics or whatever or deviant art? And then now, now they are in the celebration of the things. The exploratories are understanding the edges. And while the completionists are actually just going through the edge. And so it depends on how much do you, the expansion of your creativity depends on how far you out on the edges versus how much are you following the rules of the game and focus on the myopic, you know, points, levels and badges is how centered you are to the area. How, how accurate do you think that is in terms of player types versus the, the closeness to the circle? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a, a very apt comparison. Um, I think that like, um, for, I think that different people get motivated creatively in different ways. And so mm -hmm. that might be why some people enjoy deeply exploring certain types of games, whereas they just want to complete other types. Mm -hmm. Um, because I don't know, for me, um, you know, and, and, you know, the, I, I kind of like your theory because it it could help understand, like potentially explain, understand the different types of people and how they could influence uh, a socially pervasive game. Um, but for me, like when I think about like games that I will explore and get creative in for hours and days and even potentially years at a time, it really depends on its ability to tell a story that I'm interested in. Um, and uh, versus, you know, have something that's just sort of deeply uh, satisfying on a completionist level. Mm -hmm. um, so like, I don't know, for instance, uh, you know, Minecraft is something yeah. that, well, that one's hard because it's not technically a game. It's kind of like a toy or something. It's a um, world building tool. Yeah. 
So yeah, with that one, it's just like I will, um, yeah, like the rules and outcomes and like there being a win and lose condition is pretty nebulous. Like mm. <laughs> it's kind of a weird space, but um, yeah, but for that one, I've been playing that for what, a decade now? Um, and, uh, yeah, it's ability to tell very dynamic stories, um, is really appealing to me, uh, mm -hmm. where there's other games like, you know, Assassin's Creed, I really enjoyed, um, you know, I have uh, some, uh, variations of it and things of that nature. Um, you know, there's other types of action games, Tomb Raider, things of that nature, where I, I really just want to learn the story. And I, in order to do that, I have to complete certain levels and complete certain puzzles. But once mm -hmm. I'm done with that, kind of done with the game. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it might, it might have to do something to do with personality types. It also might have something to do with what, what encourages someone to get creative. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are, are you in the creative mindset? Or are you in the completionist mindset? Do you, do you need it? Are you very much that you had that anxiety? You have that anxiety. You have the, the energy come within and it's like, okay, are you in a serious mindset? Then it turns into anxiety Oh, a playful mindset it turns into that. So maybe you get stimulated from the game. And if you're feeling more creative, for whatever reason, you then turn that energy into, oh, I'll draw and make art from this, or I'm feeling more, I've got to get this done. So I'm wondering if it's not necessarily, it could be personalities, but it could also be, uh, um, depending on the, the mood you're in, um, possibly. Yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting yeah. it's an interesting thought, but like as you're describing that, I was thinking like, that sounds like these types of play characters. And then there's, and then there's like the completely disengaged person that just wants to, super serious, and you got to like, bring them in somehow, you know, and I don't know about the best spot to do that either from the outside in or the inside out, but that's, that's interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, for, for sort of the, the area of like the social networking aspect of my game, yeah. um, ultimately what I was looking for was not necessarily a personality type, yeah. um, but a sort of a player type. Um, you know, so maybe this person might be, you know, deeply introverted in some other aspect or, you know, deeply, uh, you know, focused on gameplay in some other aspect. But it might be that for this particular um, space, you know, uh, things like um, their um, their social importance level. Um, you know, so whether they were a, you know, a freshman or software, a sophomore as an undergraduate or something versus a professor or something like that, that might inspire you to treat the game differently, even if it would be something that would be interesting and engaging to you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, it, you may have more, um, more to lose by getting so deeply ingrained in this experience. I've, well, I've, noticed, that, I've noticed that a lot with like, um, like virtual reality and people the i've noticed the 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 richer the suit the person has on the less likely they are to have fun in virtual reality yes and so versus like like a seven-year-old will run and go i don't care we're having a great time and they're just like they don't care if they're naked they're just running around screaming versus like if there's a boss or a ceo and they're surrounded by all their like people below them in the in hierarchy and then they go, boss, put on the headset. They're like, do not want to look like a fool. And right. so they like, and that, and that will completely color the whole experience. So like, that's at least well, talking about that one. So I, I felt like that your status and, and, and what your interpretation of the technology will do to your status or the gameplay. So, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. That was actually something that carried over very nicely to virtual reality when I started working there mm -hmm. um, was because of that understanding of the black box and then also 
what the spectator's role in that experience is. Like adoption for virtual reality is very dependent on the people that are outside watching you having a very clear sense of what you're doing and how you're behaving in that experience. Um, when they can't see it um, and when uh, things don't sort of match up or line up with their expectation, um, then it doesn't really, it, yeah, it doesn't really, uh, you know, help drive that sort of acceptability and adoption if you're watching someone just be flail around and do things that aren't there in reality and you can't really have a, a clear understanding of what's going on or relate to that in any meaningful way. Yeah. So, so it's, 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 it well, maybe think about because I thought about, um, uh, Powell's play circles, uh, <laughs> playlists, uh, and and really, I was like, I was like, oh wow, they're the ones on the outside, but they're in the creative space because what do people do in that one? They make their own art. How do they make their own art? They record you with a video camera and go and share it on social media because they want to say, hey, this is the way that I'm participating. I'm going to record my fin because I think they look like a fool and I think it's funny. And I'm going to record that and then I'm going to post on social media. And so they're on the outside and they are making art out of the medium of play. So, which is interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah. Super fun. That's super fun. Um, let's, let, let's shift in the area of virtual reality talking about this. Um, I know that you, you, you built a, uh, it was, it was a, a amazing um, a snow day uh, VR game. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? And then we can talk about, how virtual reality and the interactions and the areas of play and all that uh, are um, different or enhanced in the world of VR? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think what's really interesting about that game, um, so Epic Snow Day Adventure, um, mm. find it on Steam. Um, but uh, yeah, the whole uh, idea of that game was sort of exploring that sense of embodiment. Yeah. Um, so I played I played several games that had that featured snowballs and you know throwing things and you know sort of a childish sort of playful experience. But um, what was really interesting to me about that experience was um, actually I'll back up and start a little bit about the history of that game. Sure. Uh, so that game was started as a result of I was working on a contract and um, it I was working on a contact in Unreal. And while I was working in Unreal and I would compile because we were doing some sort of next gen stuff at the time, at the now everybody does it, but I was working yeah. on some multiplayer stuff. Yeah. And um, yeah, it took a very long time for um, the uh, build to compile. Um, and so while it was building, I would just fire up Unity um, and work on <laughs> And so I started putting together this sort of snowy world and all of this stuff. And what was interesting was that it was so interesting. And, um, you know, it like when I would put the headset on, I would feel a little cooler and stuff like that. And I really wanted to explore that. So at one point, it, I looked completely crazy because I have my headset on and I'm laying on the floor in the middle of this co-space, just sort of like lounging around in the snow and making, you know, I, I didn't have the functionality for snow angles, but I was just like, you know, doing things. And I was like, I want to scoop this snow up. I want to turn it into a snowman, you know, all of that stuff. And so when I would think about that, I would just build it and I'd be like, well, I don't, you know, I would put the headset on and do the motion and be like, well, I don't want to map it to the buttons because that will cause a person to lose that sense of embodiment. Like yep. they should yeah. act. They shouldn't yeah. just feel like they're there. They should act like they're there too. Yeah. 
Um, and so all of the mechanics um, from that game, uh, even from like the idea of exhaling and seeing your own, you know, the, the mist come out of your mouth and all of that stuff was just based off of this idea of, you know, I, I want you to have that sort of sense of, of presence, but I also want you to have that sense of embodiment. Like yeah. you are a part of this experience and your body is a part of this experience. And so, yeah, when I uh, made that game, this was deeply an investigation on in this idea of, you know, you know, we don't just want a person to feel like they're there, like, or at least feel like they're there just from the eyes or, you know, uh, head up. I yeah. want them to feel that from their hands to their breath to everything else. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that one was a very interesting um uh, and fun, uh, in, you know, experiment because it basically just allowed me to explore what happens when you give a person that level of embodiment. Um, because what, what ends up happening is that they learn sort of how to play, um, at a very different level. Um, they, they learn how to play, not just as like, you know, oh, I need to push this button at right at this time. You know, they, they, they learn how to play as like, well, I can scoop up uh, uh, I can scoop up uh, snow faster by you know making wider gestures. Um, um, or, you know I, I should bend down more because then that'll give my arms more span. You know and so like what was interesting about it was not just the person inside having the time of their life. You know throwing these snowballs and you know uh, I think at one point I added like mega super energy snowballs that would glow with mighty energy you'd hurl it at people and they go flying um <laughs> virtual reality people yeah. Yeah. um but uh but also the spectators had a lot more to sort of work with um because instead of a person just sort of like you know you know how people look in virtual reality especially the first time they play it's typically you know the they're looking around and the the controls are usually edited such that small minute um, experiences and, and mechanics work better. So mm -hmm. you figure out the maximum amount you need to flick your arm and release the trigger in order for something to go a certain direction because there's no sense of weight or anything like that. So it's just less of a, you know, a engaging experience unless you have, you know, a, a big screen where everybody can see what you're doing. Um, yeah. You know, and so what was really cool about, um, you know, Epic Snow Day Adventure was that, yeah, you put the big screen up, but the important and entertaining thing was actually the person wearing the headset, you know, going around scooping up snow and, and throwing things as fast oh, as they can and turning around. And so, so it was what it makes me think about is I think that would be an amazing um, title or use case for the um, the Oculus Quest with the hands because you know they have hand trackings right so you have the hand tracking pieces and now you can scoop up the hands you can pat it because you think about that like one thing that's weird about the Quest is they don't want you to cross hands right that's not right. but scooping motions would work really really well as that in that kind of gameplay and that would that would that's all about the hands and. And all that stuff. So I, I would that that's immediately what I thought about. I was like, you know, get that thing on the quest, you know, and put that out there because the hand tracking piece I think would be really legit. Yeah, I, I honestly can't believe I haven't put it on the quest yet. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I never enough time all the time is mm. that like yeah, those those that hand tracking and especially mm. the sort of untethered experience. Um, you know, just 
uh, free flowing and things like that. It is perfect for the plus. That is um, awesome. So, yeah. Um, so let me ask you a question about this. So you came up with this idea on the downtime. You're, you have, you're doing one thing and you know, as we all understand, there's lots of downtime when you're compiling and when you're just doing stuff off to the side. And so you're like, oh, I'm going to do this thing. And you kind of just exploratory found that. How do you, how do you go about like uh, designing and, oh, shoot. Oh, I lost you. I lost you for a beat. My bad. Not too sure it happened. You're back. Not okay. sure. Technology. Technology. <laughs> so, um, uh, how do you go about? So, we were talking about how do you go about? Um, well, how would you recommend people going about like uh, coming up with ideations and prototyping, especially if they, they're not good at code, they don't know really how to do it, they're not very comfortable in those areas. How would they go? How would they? How would they? You. Would they step through that process of, of ideation and testing and going through that to kind of discover something that is like innovative, like uh, Epic Snow Day? Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I think this is something that is um, diff. Like it's actually similar whether you are building something like virtual reality for the first time um, or just building like a traditional game uh, game experience. Is like I I, I don't know. I actually. I think I got a lot of sort of my um, my motivation from like, you know, uh, going to GDC, sort of talking to some of the creative directors about how where they get influence, where they get mm -hmm. ideas and things of that nature. Um, and a lot of the times it's usually just sort of stepping away from the controller and then just going at, well, you know, what is something that's really, really fun to do and then iterate on that. Um, and so with this one, this was actually a, um, you know, a great exercise of that where it was just like, you know, I was in this world and I was just like, this is really interesting. Uh, the world itself is very scenic and, you know, I can do something with this, but what would I immediately want to do in this world? You know, mm -hmm. what would I be inspired to do if there were no controllers? Um, you know, and uh, if I had a bunch of people that were around me that were all you know, equally bored and interested in something to do. Um, and so like a lot of the times I will end up just iterating on, you know, um, a fun mechanic just without like thinking or mapping it to a controller or a headset or a virtual reality experience of like, what's a fun action to perform over and over again? Because a mm. lot of the times that in games, that is what is happening is that you are creating a mechanic that is deeply engaging and deeply fun. And how do you turn that, you know, the next step is how do you turn that into a story or a narrative? You know, how do you create like interesting variations of that so that you're not doing exactly the same thing over and over? You know, how do you turn that into strategy and all of that stuff? But usually there is something that's core to it. Yeah. Um, and so for me, that's always been sort of important is sort of like constraining um, to uh, something that's key uh, about a mechanic, about a story, about a puzzle or something like that, um, rather than starting, you know, big and then trying to work my way down um, uh, into something that's a game. Uh, so um, for a lot of people that are starting out in game design and game industry and virtual reality, um, a lot of the initial inclination to do is to say, well, I like these seven games and I want to build a game that has all of the components that I like across all of these seven games. And then 
my game will just be better because it has all of the best stuff of all of the games. Yeah. Um, and so not only is that not realistic um, that you can actually do that, uh, but it's also not true. Like <laughs> all the best components of seven different games and merge them into a very large super mega game. It's probably not going to be very much fun because there's nothing for a certain a person to grab a hold of, to focus on, to really sort of build that sort of understanding around the world. Um, Constraints. So so that's really interesting. So just diving on that one just a little bit is what it makes me of is two things is um, Discord versus Clubhouse. So like Discord has a ton of mechanics and it's amazing if you're building a game, you want to have a community, you want to chat and do a whole bunch of things and get in and out of games, all that stuff. Clubhouse did a really good job at one core mechanic, which is live talking. You talk audio to groups of people and then some people jump in, you can jump in, jump out. Uh, Discord, you can pretty much do all that same stuff in one of the channels that they have open that stuff. But it's 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 all these it's 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 not one very specific use case that you do over and over and over and over and over again, right? So you 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 yeah. render it down to the the purest form of the mechanic, and you say, what about this is super fun, and then and then just push in that direction as far as you can go. Versus the kind of like the hometown buffet style of mechanics or it's like we're gonna have everything we're gonna build the entire metaverse it's gonna be great you know and that I mean maybe uh you know maybe they can do that you know but it's like what what are the core mechanic loops that are super fun to do pleasurable and that you're gonna want to do a hundred thousand times right that's kind of the jazz okay. yeah yeah and uh, I, I think that like yeah it's something like you know you you took it sort of space outside of games and that's true like People do that all the time. Like even giant companies that fear, like you look at it and you go, wow, they literally have everything in this application, like Photoshop or something like that. Yeah. It's like, right. yeah, Photoshop has like a million different functions and utilities and all of these things, but they also are very meticulous about the way they introduce these things and these different layers and these different levels of just, you know, being able to do more and more and more with it. Um, so like, you know, uh, all of these uh, these giant mega uh, applications that we know and love today usually came from something that allows you to have that sense of flow yeah. uh, where it's just like, okay, I'm, I'm hitting a balance between uh, this idea of um, learning and, uh, and, and, and creating. And it's, it's, at this perfect level that I will keep learning in this application for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. um, and so flow usually has a lot of implications around it. Usually you lose a sense of time, you know, you're um, not realizing that you're gaining more value out of the system over time. You're, you know, there's this, but it also, um, you know, the levels of frustration are just enough that you don't just throw the application away in a fit of rage. Um, <laughs> there's there's always something to it to keep you um, grounded that like you have a place, you have a foundation with which you can keep growing on this platform. Um, and so, yeah, like even, even non-game applications do this very, very well. Um, they have a team of designers that are focused on just how do you create that sense of flow when you're right, you know, you're working. And it's so hard and it's so hard to like flow is one of those like amorphous kind of like difficult to track and you're talking i think stir is the acronym it's like selflessness timelessness 
um, richness and something else. I can't remember what it is, but it's one of the things it's like, it, it, as soon as you just say, Oh, I'm in flow, you're out of flow. Like it's, yeah. it's just, you can't, you can't grab it. Cause as soon as you, it's like a, it's like a non-duality state kind of thing. It's this weird thing that you gotta, you, it's got, you just gotta be peripherally aware that you're in it and just like, I'm not going to pay attention. Um, how do you, how do you tell, or how do you build something for flow? Like, how can you tell that your players are in flow? What are some like heuristics that you could see to show that people are in flow? What do you, what do you got? What are you thinking? Yeah. Um, so yeah, like you just said, I totally a hundred percent agree that, that it's this sort of, uh, ephemeral, like this, yes. it's really hard to grasp it. Um, mm. and it, you know, a lot of people talk about flow, but it's really hard to sort of articulate what causes it, um, mm. or what you can do to achieve it. Um, but you can tell when someone is in, is in it and you can tell the moment it's broken. Um, and so, uh, yeah, for low me, disappointment. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so VR has something that is sort of tangential, not directly related, but uh, you know, it's that sense of presence. Um, there's a contract that you make in virtual reality where a person says, I'm going to give you pieces of my brain that normally people, uh, you know, creatives don't have access to like my vestibular system, my sense of balance and direction and all of these things that I use my periphery and my inner ear and all of that stuff for, I'm gonna give that access to you so you can tell me an interesting story or give me an interesting experience. And mm. I'm expecting you not to break me. Don't <laughs> hurt me, <laughs> don't traumatize me. <laughs> don't make me fatigued and make you, me virtually sick. <laughs> you, are, you are speaking on something that's so powerful, I say, you are controlling someone's entire reality. Be yeah. gentle. So that's why I am like the one like giant pet peeve I have that I can't stand that like I'll get, I'm pretty cool most of the time, but like one giant pet peeve I have are friends or people messing with people in virtual reality, people that poke them and kick them and push them. And it's like, it drives me nuts because it's yeah. like, look guys, they're trying to enjoy themselves and your enjoyment is it's Shatterfreud. Your enjoyment is coming from ruining their enjoyment. And that's not a way to enjoy life. That you might you might get some pleasure out of it, but it's 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 rude and it's, it's disrespectful. And it's also you have a you have a unique responsibility and privilege to care for someone's like well being inside there and like make it a safe place. And if you don't, it's it's rude. It's just rude, right. you know. So it's like, hey man, be cool. Just be cool. Can we all be cool? Yeah. Um. So so you're right when that you're saying because you cause you're, it's a very vulnerable situation. Hey, I'm gonna give up my entire reality for you to tell me a story. Right. Like, how do you, okay, on that note, how do you, how do you deal with this, these two realities? How do you deal with the fact that um, virtual reality is all about presence and interaction, right? Um, but then we want to tell these stories, but in virtual reality, nobody cares about stories. Like if I sat there and you put on a headset and then all of a sudden I monologued at you for 10 minutes while you have a headset on, you're going to want to kick me in the shins. So sure. like. So like, how do you rectify the, 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 the power of storytelling, right? And also our hatred of storytelling inside the VR experience when all we wanna do is play and interact. How do you rectify those two worlds? That, that one's fun because you, know, you, you, you hit the nail on the head about like today's virtual reality experience um, because you're right, people aren't, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people can't tolerate storytelling in virtual reality. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, 
um, uh, that sort of rectification is that that is actually my journey. Like, you know, with Verge of Brilliance um, or Brilliance or whatever I end up doing, uh, the idea is that I want to be able to tell epic, epic stories. I want to create fantastic RPGs and beautiful, fantastic experiences in VR. And I do, uh, I am very aware that it's a long way out because um, that sense of presence is very fleeting currently. And a lot of it can be dealt with like, you know, it, you know, designers still learning the ropes about like, you know, what kind of UI is diegetic, what kinds of things keep people engaged, what types of things break them out of the experience um, and cause a level of fatigue associated with long bouts of gameplay. But then there's also parts where it's just like the technology is not there yet. It's too heavy, it's too fatiguing, you know, so you could be in, in completely engaged in epic audio, uh, it's 100, 360 degrees spatially audio, you know, all of this really, really cool stuff. But at the end of the day, it's just like it's it, there's too much fatigue being introduced in all of these different areas of like, you know, novice designers that don't really know how to keep a person engaged. Hardware that's just a little too hard. Locomotion, which is absolutely usually a killer for, um, you know, uh, storytelling and um, that sense of um, uh, of 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 diegetic movement. So like mm -hmm. the idea that like, you know, teleportation, teleportation is kind of like a Band-Aid. Um, mm -hmm. It's like we it do that <laughs> because, um, you know, steering around is just so awkward and awful to just experience. And usually people's play spaces aren't large enough to travel the, you know, creative like, you know, landscapes that people create. Um, and so, but until we have something that actually doesn't break you from feeling like you're in the game, you know, locomotions, what we, uh, the teleportation strategies and all of these other sort of variants thereof are what we've, we've got. Um, so, yeah, I think that storytelling is going to come along with those, you know, those micro victories of how do you keep a person in there instead of 15 minutes for 30 minutes? How do you keep mm -hmm. a person in there from 30 minutes to three hours? Um, and games like virtual reality just isn't there yet. Like, you know, well, you're not well, supposed to do that long. You can, I mean, well, I've, I've definitely done it longer than that. Um, I've, I've, for, for often. Um, uh, you're right though. There is a certain amount of external friction, right? Friction of the system, friction of the, you break the immersion through the locomotions, you break the more, if you have a cord wrapped around your legs, it breaks immersion. And so you get distracted from the storyline. That's one piece of it. The other part I want to just touch on is our hatred of stories while we're playing games, like every tutorial you've ever seen, right? You try to make this really well-crafted, well-thought-out tutorial that tells everybody stuff. And what do you do? Skip, 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 skip. You skip the whole thing. And you're like, I'll figure it out. Let's go, right? Why? Why, if we love stories, if we use stories for uh, story, is the backbone of our education. Yeah. Stories are the ways that we communicate knowledge and lessons and insights and parables and that that the universal language is stories, and we hate them in video games. Why? What? How do we get around that? Like uh, beyond the, beyond just the technology piece of the friction of the heavy headset and all those other pieces uh, in gaming and in VR specifically, there is a, there is a, a, a vitriol hatred for tutorials, which is a story of how to play this game. So what about that? How do we overcome that piece? Well, I mean, I think that, um, you know, when you get to a tutorial, it really depends on, you know, who made that tutorial and how was it presented to the user? Because a lot of the times, store um, the 
the tutorial is telling a very different story. It is, it is telling you, it's not telling you anything about the story that you signed up for. It's telling you about like, how can you exist in this world? You know, what are the buttons which are very deeply disconnected from the, re the experience and the story you're trying to engage with? What are the buttons you press in order to move the story forward? Mm. You know, all of that stuff. So when it comes to things like tutorials, you know, I, I don't think this is any different from, you know, it, um, the non VR games that we play. Yeah. It's yeah. like, hate that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it's a barrier. It's a barrier from you and the story that you heard so much about. Like, you don't want to sit there to learn how to learn how to play the game. Um, you want to experience it. Yeah. Um, and you don't want to be you know, uh, broken from that by saying, oh yeah, by the way, all of this is fake. You have to do this in order for this to happen. You have yeah. to do all of these sort of transfer of, of you know, uh, <laughs> this mechanic equals this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's like the, it's like almost like the tutorial is like the gatekeeper to your fun. Yeah. Like they're, the, they're the barrier preventing you like, hey, look, you are. Yes, mom, I understand. I need to wait 30 minutes before I go jump in the pool. I got it. I got it. Let me go. Let, let me go. I understand to play the rules of the game. That makes sense. I, 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 I can with you on that one. OK. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of the external factors, but then there's stuff that we do as a part. And, you know, like for people like you and me, like how, that have been playing in virtual reality and building and creating content for as long as we have at this point. Like, yeah, yeah, we might be a little more forgiving of that because we realize that there is some level of, you know, having to learn the system. But I think that, you know, virtual reality in its current infancy form is really going to actually have to do that less and less as we start to incorporate more of the um, uh, more of the different sort of uh, modes of operation into virtual reality. So now we're starting to incorporate things like um, you know, eye tracking and more sort of just natural hand gestures and things of that nature, which are closer, if you do it right, closer to one-to-one -one with reality. So there's mm -hmm. less of a tutorial that's needed because yeah. there's less of a mapping of buttons and things of that nature to the actual mechanic. You know how to be a human, so you, you should be able to figure this out. Yeah, right. that, no, that makes a ton of sense. Um, what, um, what do you, like, ultimately, right now the like you mentioned it a little bit what are some of the barriers preventing you because you said about your epic journey is to is is to tell epic stories in vr that whole as we know the the, the ultimate vr um rpg you know um yeah, yeah yeah all all the ones that we really truly want you know and then we go oh does elon musk really need to plug that thing into our brain and we're like okay sure and then we get trapped and you know yeah all that and then we have to survive Someone's feeding us food through a, a tube, but we but we're super into it. Um, so, uh, what are the barriers do you think right now that and you touched on a little bit? And what needs to happen to really be able to open up those worlds that all of us as game designers and and, and world builders really want to happen? Yeah, um, yeah, I've been like thinking about this a lot, especially since the pandemic started, because like one of the things that I assumed would happen would be people would get a lot more engaged in VR because, you know, you need an escape or something like that. But I know that at least for me, that didn't happen. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's really interesting. So, you know, if, if similarly that didn't happen for you, you know, you might want to think about like, what are the reasons why 
in all of your downtime where you're just like, ah, I'm so terribly bored. I need to do anything, you know, and you don't think to put on the headset. And there's like a couple of reasons why that is, um, in my opinion. Um, one is um, this idea of accessibility. One thing that uh, traditional video games have gotten right over time uh, that virtual reality has not achieved yet is that there are many variations and levels of fitness and health that a person is in throughout the part, uh, throughout any part of the day. Virtual reality requires 100% attention and 100% health in order mm -hmm. to deeply enjoy virtual reality. If you are at 70%, you're not gonna wanna put on that headset. If you're at 90%, you're probably not gonna wanna put on that headset. Um, and that is a very, very difficult like a uh, place for someone to be at at any given point of the day. Um, at the beginning of the day, it's probably more likely because you have all of your energy and you haven't done anything and you haven't expended any of your extra energy. But at the end of the day, when you're done with work or done with school, done with your homework and all of that stuff, it's certainly not there. Um, and so for me, like that, um, you know, people a lot of other times think of accessibility as something that's only for someone that is differently abled. You know, someone that, you know, uh, that, uh, you know, might have like low vision in one eye or they're missing an arm or something like that. Um, but accessibility is really for everyone. Um, and if you're leaving out um, the differently abled, you're probably leaving out the bulk of, of people as well. Mm. Um, because at any point, like, you know, I can stump my toe and then I don't want to play virtual reality anymore. Um, I can read a book all day and then I don't want to play virtual reality anymore. Um, I could be sick with a cold and I don't want to play virtual reality anymore. <laughs> or, I, you know, so I, I think that that's probably one of the number one things that keeps people from having these deeply enjoyable, deeply engaging experiences is that it's not it's not conductive to that yet. It, yeah. it doesn't allow the variations that you go through throughout the day. Yeah, it's a challenge to design. One thing is like casual gaming versus hardcore gaming, the level of intention and skill. Button mashing has joys versus skill building has joys. And you want to provide something that's got a bit of everything for everyone without feeling someone feel isolated or left out or dumbed down or whatever you want to call it. Um, right. So it's it's a really, but it's, it's at a much higher degree um, because it's your whole body, right? Yeah. It's like it's so much more. Right. Uh, that's, that's super interesting. Uh, um, so uh, unfortunately, we gotta, I gotta, I gotta cut this a little short today because I gotta go boogie to um, another event. Um, I'd love for you to stay on just for a minute afterwards so we can wrap things up. But before that, um, I'd like to say, is there anything else you'd like to let people know about um, before you tell them how they can get a hold of you and find out more about what you do? Oh sure. Um, well, one of the um, things I work on now. Um, I am a engineering manager um, and sort of virtual reality architect at Proprio, um, which is a um, healthcare company um, and we focus on medical devices um, and it's a virtual reality experience um, that is meant to help surgeons um, uh, do uh, surgery on your back better. Um, and so uh, really, really cool. Um, and we are hiring. So anyone that has a virtual reality background um, and especially, you know, if you have a 
you know, for me, like I, I have a video game background, so I'm always looking for people that can sort of help uh, from sort of that virtual reality um, that mm -hmm. mindset of like yeah. bridging that gap between this is what a medical device needs, whereas is this is how you make it, um, you know, uh, useful and optimal for a person that's like deeply engaged in a task. Um, so we're a very, very multidisciplinary company. Um, we very, very much value people with virtual reality and background in game game design and development. Um, and uh, you would be working with me. So win-win <laughs> all the way around. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're interested, go to proprio-vision.com, um, look at the job opportunities there and uh, let me know. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you, Dr. Evie Powell. I really appreciate this. And uh, it's been a pleasure, absolute pleasure chatting with you. It's been a, it, uh, it's been a joy. Um, I really do thank you for your time and I appreciate all that you do. And I will see you on the other side. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Bye now. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes Quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or, if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.